and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 89, which begins with Ripley telling Hicks to show her everything, and ends with Ripley approaching an empty cot. And Todd Norris is back with us again today. Thanks for coming back for day four, Todd. Thank you. You started this. (laughs) Let's go. Yeah, I guess I jumped the gun on the show me everything line a little bit last bit, but it was... uh, but her, you started this is really playful. It's yeah. her version of it's not like we're engaged or anything. Yeah, like it's just they both get one, right? They both yeah. get one of those get one of those really kind of flirty, playful moments, and it's just it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, before we move to the you know the, the next scene in the hall, the the one thing I noticed about the the scene, just in terms of camera placement, uh, and many scenes in Aliens, is that. On just basic close-ups, basic dialogue scenes, the camera is placed not waist level, but maybe sort of like navel level to chest level. There's a lot of sort of low angles. And I think for this scene, it might have been a practical choice in the sense that since the gun had to be featured, that having the camera be lower would allow the gun to loom larger as they're talking about it. But it also reveals the ceiling much more so than other scenes. And I'm thinking that maybe there was a slight foreshadowing going on because it's not too soon in the movie that they realize that you know that they can come through the ceiling that's where they're going to be so i don't know if that was just sort of a little subtle foreshadowing there's that grid pattern of the ceiling all through the 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 scene as they're talking so yeah nothing wrong with visually starting to nudge us that way and like show us orient us to the surroundings so you know even if you're not conscious of it later when the when those guys come popping through the ceiling it's visually going to make sense to you already. You already know what the ceiling is made of, so or looks like, at least in the back of your mind. You know, he's always re- really clear with geography. I've always found with Cameron's mm-hmm. movies yeah. that, uh, whereas Ridley Scott, the only time he was ever clear with geography was in Alien, because it seems like his movies, the more deeper and deeper you get into his work, the harder and harder it is to know where the hell you are. But with Cameron, I always feel like I know where I am. I, I'm always I'm always oriented properly. So he's got a good sense of how he works you within the space. Yeah, I'd actually say that's one of the better things he about the Abyss. Um, in the Abyss, weirdly, it's a complicated movie in a way because oh, it's a complicated movie. But the the geography of that movie is very complicated because it's a place that none of you have ever been. none of us have ever been there. This is a completely unfamiliar thing on underwater you know, sea base or whatever. Yeah. And yet I, I remember watching that movie and always feeling like they're coming in and out of corridors and into these different parts of that. And then out into the sea and coming, I always felt like I knew where I, where I was. That's got to be hard to handle. You know, it would take a lot of forethought to make sure that you know, the audience was oriented correctly. And you always that. know that Chris Elliott is on the surface. You know, <laughs> well, right. I kind of think of him that way in life. I always know Chris Elliott's out there. <laughs> um, yeah, so should we talk about the corridor, this quick corridor? I, I do find that moment when she comes out with the gun, um, even though it's, it's you know, Ripley with the gun, I do feel like the way that that corridor is lit for just the 20 steps that she takes until she runs into Gorman at the, at the, in the next room feels a little bit like alien to me. Like I feel mm-hmm. kind of like I'm on the Nostromo. There's something quiet about it. There's no music to it. And it, I don't know, it's a, I like that feeling. There's something resonant about it. Yeah, I uh, you know there's there's more to talk about in this shot because it's actually a fairly long master shot. So we're going to see Gorman and Burke and Vasquez later on as the shot progresses. But to talk about that, 
It is. It's, it starts just as a simple pan. You know, the door's open, she comes out, and she passes by the camera, and the camera uh, pans right with her, and then does a little bit of a dolly move to get us up to the door where Gorman comes out. And the entire scene is shot in this very simple uh, shot. And again, this is something that I feel is missing from a lot of contemporary films. It's just blocking and staging, you know, mise-en-scene, just allowing the story to take place in a single shot and not having to cut everything up into close-ups. Um, so that's what's nice about it. It could have been the schedule, you know, because they, they had a breakneck schedule to make this movie, and they might have just said, hey, let's do this in one. But it works. You don't need any coverage. Yeah, there's a lot of oneers in this whole 10 minutes, even the way that he does the scenes with everybody talking together, and then maybe he'll go for one single for a punctuation at the end. But, um, yeah, it's probably a combination of of what he needed to do to meet a schedule and also just to keep us alive in the space. You know, I feel like such an old fart talking like about <laughs> cut, 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 cut. You know, it's like Fred Ward at the beginning of the player talking about <laughs> that's the way movies are. But, um, but there is, I, yeah, I like, I like mise-en-scene. I like. And I think the, the editing choice here, I, I'm of two minds about it. Like we get this cut from our love scene. I will note that at the end of that, that scene ends on the button of, um, of, uh, Hicks telling her, well, first of all, her saying that she can take care of herself. Of course, we know that. And of course, Hicks knows that. And he tells her, yeah, I've noticed. I think that's a point. That's a point line because yes, he has noticed. He's noticed. We've mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. He's been paying attention to her all along. So uh, we finally get like verbal confirmation of this fact that he's been observing her and he's taken in what he's seen. But then we get this cut to Ripley in full soldier. I mean, she's walking the, her guard, you know, her, what do you call it? Why can't I think of the word? Um, you know, walking the perimeter, I suppose, uh, as a guard now. She's full soldier mode. And I like what that's saying, but there's something in me where it seems like such an obvious cut, too, that it kind of hits me wrong, if you know what I mean. Like, it's it's a little bit of that call and response again that we were talking about trying to avoid with the putting the bishop thing in between the two things. It's, it's like, here she is learning about it again. Here she is, and it's just a really... I don't know, kind of an obvious shot. I'm nitpicking big time here. But you thought it was an awkward cut too, didn't you, Todd? Yeah, I had originally thought that there was a deleted scene from the director's cut that went in between that, but apparently not. So it's, I only find it awkward in that it goes from this moment where there, where she's sort of smiling and 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 he's laughing, and it's this, you know, the the moment that we just talked about, to her face being stone cold serious and her walking out, and it just makes you wonder, like what happened did, yeah. did he piss her off what happened <laughs> well i think that she's now she's now playing a slightly different character i mean that's what i mean though it's a little too on the nose in a way because it, it is it's a it's a big shift to tell you something like visually not a natural character moment if you see what i mean so i think that's why it hits me wrong but at the same time i love that it's um we've just now moved into ripley as soldier mode fully like here she is, she's actually walking the perimeter, holding it correctly, you assume. You know, she's one of the Marines now. So I think that's what we're getting with the cut, but it just it feels like it could have been handled a little bit more subtly. We are moved through a couple of different emotions, though, once she gets to Gorman. It's pretty interesting how fast these emotions come. The fact that Gorman feels, frankly, ashamed uh, mm -hmm. and wants to apologize, and she's not particularly interested in in his apology, given that he's proven himself to be incompetent and you can't apologize your way out of that one. And then the moment between Gorman and Vasquez is great. When she walks in and the camera lingers on Gorman yeah. as he steps out and Vasquez has got her eyes on him. And it's just like, you know, if you didn't feel two inches tall before, you're certainly going to feel that way now, the way that she's looking at you. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was a previous episode um, where one of your guests had mentioned that you know, James Cameron is not known for any sort of subtlety, that that he can beat you over the head with things. However, in this shot, for an example, again, Gorman comes out of the door and Vasquez is on the other side of the frame and she's out of focus. And then we just cut. There's no rack focus. There's no cut to a close-up or a reverse. The, the moment is completely understandable without even having to really see her face. That's what's great yeah, about it. Yeah. And then we just cut away. And... Um, the testament to the fact that that scene works is that later on, of course, when when Vasquez and Gorman meet their demise, that scene feels emotionally earned because of these beats yep. that have been set up. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, it's a it's a very small, very subtle beat in their art together, it's in their relationship. And that is, like, here we are in the same minute talking about how, like, Cameron can beat you over the head with a cut and at the same time being really subtle with another cut or another shot. Right. So, I mean, I think he's just kind of finding his way. He's still a young director when he's making Aliens, so maybe he's finding a way. And sometimes he's hitting the mark and sometimes he's not. Right. But um, this one is a nice moment. Because we've, we've skipped over the fact, I mean, we mentioned that Burke is there with Gorman. We yeah. probably should explore the significance of that if there is any. Now, is there, do you think there's a significance to the fact that Burke is even in this shot? Or it always seemed weird to me. Two shit birds after, right there. Yeah. Are they still in cahoots? Are they? What do you think? Is Bert is Bert gone in? Well, oh, well, I better get to him before Ripley does and try to talk. You know, set up something to talk my way out of the shit that I've gotten myself into. I mean, it's it's an interesting moment because it's not really acknowledged in any way. I think in a storytelling level, it's functional that you know just that are realistic that they would be there together. But I think it's interesting that the four characters that are represented in this shot are Gorman who is the, it's the two men who are the, like you said, the shitbirds, and the two women that they have disappointed. <laughs> so there's Burke and Ripley, and they have one kind of relationship, and there's Gorman and Vasquez. And so what's interesting is that Gorman is on his way to redemption, that, that he feels genuinely apologetic and, and, and it owns up in this moment, owns up to his mistake. Whereas Burke, I think at the end of the shot, he literally darts out frame left, and you're assuming that's the moment he's probably hatching his plan. Yeah. And so uh, to me, it's there as a contrast that here's these two men that were both originally kind of one was in this position already. And now we're starting to realize and they're going two different routes, one on the road to redemption and the other one on the road to you yeah. know, whatever. You know, it makes me also think about to look at this when we were talking about that sort of temporal disorientation that comes from the, the length of the film. You know, another thing in terms of the agenda to make this film successful, if you're looking kind of backwards, like you're reverse engineering it. Think about all the characters who have died up to this point. And all of those characters had to be introduced, given something that makes us at least kind of understand who they are, some, some more efficiently and effectively than others, and then killed off, right? Once those characters are gone, the characters who are left, now they need a little bit more tender, loving care and attention to them. Because you can't introduce everybody all at once, and you can't do... You know, you can't draw broad strokes on everybody at the same time. That may be another reason the movie is long. Because we're doing much-needed character work here at 88 minutes into the movie uh, because we frankly didn't have enough time to do that because we had five other characters or something up to this point. So that's, you know, that's another really interesting thing. We're really kind of pulling away all of the elements now, and we've only got these, what, five characters left in the movie. Yeah. I wanted to say one thing about Burke just because he's in this minute. And, again, listening to this podcast on the to and from work – uh, it was interesting to me when Burke was first introduced in the early minutes of, of your podcast 
that your guests all seem to like, they knew his number right from the start. They're like, oh, he's so creepy. Oh, uh, you know, like, oh, and it's, and it makes me wonder like, is that a generational thing or what? Because has there been such a pattern created as a, as a echo of, of Burke in, in pop culture that they immediately knew what, because when I saw the movie and maybe I'm just naive, I didn't suspect anything really. I just thought he was, you know, I didn't necessarily think he was going to be heroic or whatever, but I was not suspicious of his demeanor until in the, until right when James Cameron revealed it. And so either I'm the dullard <laughs> or something has culturally changed since 1986 in terms of how to interpret his character. And I just wonder what you guys think. I wonder if um, that this kind of familiar corporate evil man character which has been probably reduced to fewer steps to get him through the arc in other movies. Um, it's different. Like, cause in this movie, what's interesting about it is, yeah, we don't trust him. Yeah. He's kind of an asshole. Yeah. He's advocating for the corporation that we already know is corrupt and would like to do this. But we don't think, I still don't think at this point, as I'm watching the movie, that he would actually do what he's going to do. Like that he would actually I'm, I was shocked when I realized he's actually he himself is actually working toward killing somebody to destroying somebody. And I thought that was really it took a while to get there. It took several, several steps of his character to, to reach us to that point. And maybe now movies are just so broad strokey that you, you're not right. going to take four or five steps to get you there. You're going to be one, two, three, done. Right. See, I'm not sure if um, these people you're talking about, these guests that had his number from the beginning really had his number as far as being a murderer though like well, yeah. i think it's more of a creep i think creep radar is far better well, and, uh, tune and, these and days me, than it used be, to be that's let true me be specific. Too. well and that's what i meant you know that there was so much talk in the, those minutes about him calling her kiddo and this whole thing that yeah it's creepy but at the time again and maybe yep. this is i hate to say it, maybe this is my middle-class no. white privilege or whatever, but like it just didn't register to me in 1986 at all as no. something creepy. Look, Look, when's the last time you saw Forbidden Planet? Right. The, the, oh, yeah. The yeah. way that these guys treat the woman in that and the way they creep on her, it's I love showing it to students today because their skin crawls, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. So maybe, again, it's that how it was in, in 1986 or 87 is different than how it is in... 2017. Do you believe it's that long since this movie came out? Yeah. yeah Kiddo was, was cute back then. Oh, that's kind of fun, you know, playful. Oh, he's just a, one of the guys kind of thing. And nowadays, the idea of gaslighting women, the idea of creep, being creepy, condescending to women, everyone's just more attuned to it. And that's definitely what he's doing. It, it, you know, you could get his number pretty easily from that apartment scene. Where she, he totally gaslights her, he totally like guilt trips her, makes her feel less than over her job, and all these things yeah. that are kind of typical male behavior for <laughs> undermining women who are in you know competent women trying to take them down a notch. So of course nowadays everybody that's just much more in the in the public consciousness, I think. So everyone's tuned to it. It's also a lot of the guests that I right. get on the show. That's their. Like a lot of, I guess, point of expertise, a lot of ways yeah. is oh, looking it's, for it's things total, like this in movies. It's, and it's totally valid, but it just yeah. it is fascinating in the sense of how movies are perceived throughout the eras and how your current, how the current times color how you see things. And um, it's difficult for me because my first experience was in 1986, and it's hard for me to, in some ways, my perception of the movie is fixed. And 
you know, like, yeah, if I had just, if I just saw the movie now for the first time, I might go, hmm, wow. Is it more of a movie now or less of a movie now, all these years later? I think more in that, in context with what we're talking about here. I think these are interesting ideas to explore within a character, a villainous character. So to me, that makes it richer. If you just saw him as like some dude, like a normal guy you'd meet every day, which I guess he still kind of is. But if you didn't think some of those things were, I'm not going to say, I was going to say significant. It's not that you didn't think they were significant. It's that you didn't see them as much significance in them. Yeah. Saying calling your kiddo and so on. I think it enriches it now to realize, oh, this is stuff that men do to women. That makes his character more rich as a villain. So Wait, I think, think it's that. God, is it a richer movie now or a less richer movie? Uh, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. Um, I mean, I think what John said makes sense. And so, um, but it, yeah, that's a tough one for me yeah. to answer. I, I I don't think that James Cameron was necessarily even thinking of that when he wrote the character of Burke. Um, but But that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would guess that he probably wasn't, to be honest, because he would probably have been in the same position. You were an only older, so he would even be more calcified in his like viewpoint of how men treat women. It would be more normalized to him to act this way, maybe even. So when he was writing, he was just writing, oh, this is a tip- your typical businessman. You know, it's like the difference between if they made Mad Men in like the 70s as opposed to now. Like now it's through the lens of how we see the past and we know that this is all bullshit how they're treating women in Mad Men. Well, back then it would have been seen as kind of cool like, uh, well, the way James Bond treated women in that era, you know? (laughs) So um, it's just a matter of where, I mean, it's a generational thing for sure. But I I just read an interview, an old interview with Gail Ann Hurd and James Cameron that was done pretty soon after the movie came out originally. And they said that, um, regarding the character of Burke, that all Hollywood agents thought that he was like a studio executive and that all studio executives thought that he was an agent. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's great. That's pretty good. That that's seems right funny. on. Um, well, I guess uh, this moves us then into this uh, Ripley making her way um, alone into the lab, right? with this uh, eventually to reach the cot. Uh, Another move that I thought felt like alien to me, the Mm -hmm. way that the camera was just sort of impassively following along with her, uh, tracking along with her from from another space, from inside the room that she was coming into, um, that sort of creeping camera, which we don't get as much of that in this movie, but it's nice to have a couple of moments because it does signal a kind of suspense or dread or foreboding, I think. Well, I, and I definitely think this room, while not being exactly the same by any means, it evokes the the medical bay and alien. Yeah. So we get a little bit of, I think we got a little bit when she brings Newt in there. I mentioned it in that minute. But here again, we're getting that entry from you know screen right in through the door that reminds you a little bit of the scene where they're going in to look for the facehugger. Yeah. So I think we're supposed to be thinking about the facehugger here. And I yeah, think the next is. minute we'll get more of that idea but yeah definitely now that i think about it it is an echo of that shot even geographically how the set is built and how she enters that is funny that's cool well we can uh, talk about that further tomorrow if you guys want to sounds good to me all right todd tell us again you can find me at uh, toddnorris.net and also uh see the short films that mitch brian and i have made at jetpackpicks.com and you can find us, of course, at AlienMinute.com, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, or on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute 89. We'll see you tomorrow for 90.